Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, James Wolfinger, author of Running the Rails. James Wolfinger, author of Running the Rails, Capital and Labor in the Philadelphia Transit Industry. When is the earliest time that there would have been something you'd call mass transit in Philadelphia? The earliest transit was with stagecoaches, um, horse cars, and so on. That was before the Civil War. Uh, but the system really gets going mostly with horse cars in the 1870s, 1860s, shortly after the Civil War. And then it consolidates more into an actual system in the 1880s. So it begins to look more like what we think of as mass transit today. In the earliest times, what were the vehicles like? The earliest were simply stagecoaches or horse carts. Uh, and because the streets were full of holes and potholes and mud, um, they decided we have to come up with a better system. And the better system, the technology at that point, was to put the carts on rails. So you got horse cars at first, you're talking about the Civil War era, and as the horse cars got bigger and faster, they had to figure out a way to haul more people. And that's when they started to make the shift with electrification into trolleys, and that comes about in the 1890s. I have to read this one thing um, that you have in your book that is a newspaper ad from 1831, mm. James Boxall having been requested by several gentlemen to run an hourly stagecoach for the accommodation of the inhabitants of Chestnut Street mm -hmm. to and from the lower part of the city, begs to inform the citizens generally that he has provided a superior new coach, harness, and good horses for that purpose. Comfort, warmth, and neatness have in every respect been carefully studied. That sounds like something out of For the Benefit of Mr. Kite from the Beatles. It does. So it was called Boxall's Accommodation. And the idea was how do you start to move people basically along the Delaware River and along Chestnut Street, right? That's where the bulk of the population was in Philadelphia until well after the Civil War. Most people in Philadelphia lived east of City Hall, mostly along the Delaware River. So it was this kind of moment where somebody seized a market opportunity and uh, called it his accommodation. And that was the start, the very first kind of public transportation in Philadelphia. Was there a, a, a system for setting up a, a transportation line like that? Or if you just had a horse and a cart, could you say, okay, I'm going to start running from this from place to that place? Very early on, it was okay. Very early on, you kind of just were an entrepreneur. But quickly, the city government and the state government figured out this is a way to charge for franchises. So often what happened was somebody had a cart and a horse and a friend in City Hall, maybe a friend in Harrisburg, and they got a franchise. So if you look at a map of the early transit system, what you'll find is that most of the lines ran north-south parallel to the Delaware River. And it wasn't really a system because it was each individual getting a franchise. And you had to figure out eventually if you wanted to bring more land to market, how do you start to expand this into an actual system rather than a lot of people running a horse car up and down a street. 
So the city, you'd have to go to the city and get a license? Usually you either had a contact at the city or directly at the state to get the franchise. It depended on the period. I want to read something else about the horses. The uh, historian Charles Cheap found that horses and their care consumed 40% of capital investment and 73% of gross revenues for transit companies. Overall, horses lasted only an average of four years before they had to be replaced. Mm -hmm. Wore out pretty quickly. Horses also produced copious amounts of waste, 10 pounds of manure a day. Mm -hmm. So, so when people decided that the horses are too expensive, what was the alternative? So when horses are too expensive, or they bring disease, or all the waste, you can imagine living next to one of the transit company horse barns when they're producing that kind of waste. A lot of people didn't think horses were the future when it came to urban transportation. So the city actually experimented with some other kinds of technology. One was what they called steam dummies. They called them that because they were essentially small steam locomotives, but they were housed so that they didn't look like locomotives, so they're called dummies. Uh, they also tried a cable car along Market Street. Yeah, how, can you explain the cable car technology and how that sure. worked? Sure, so the idea was that you would essentially dig a, a trough in the road, cover it up, there would be a cable, and the cable was a long loop, and it was powered by usually a steam engine that would just pull the cable along, and the cars operated by the operator of the car had um, a grip, it was called, and it would grab the cable and it would just pull the car along, and when you le release the grip, the car stops, right? It's pretty basic technology. The problem becomes you can't pass each other, and if a car breaks down, then the system has to come to a stop, or if the cable breaks, the whole thing has to come to a stop. So it's a difficult technology, especially in the north where you have ice and snow getting into the cable mechanism and so on. So it improved to be a very, um, a very good alternative. Uh, the alternative, it took some time to actually do the technology breakthrough was with electricity. And that was the development of the trolley cars and the trolley lines that you still see a few of today around Philadelphia, but they were all across the city during the heyday. You say in the book that the, the trolley lines, the power lines went overhead, where in some other cities they, they buried them. That was actually a point of contention in the city. A lot of people, the fire marshal and so on, complained that these were fire hazards. Uh, if you were going through and you accidentally touched a live line, there was a fear that you might actually electrocute yourself. Um, but burying the, the electric lines was much more expensive. So Philadelphia and a lot of other cities kept them as overhead lines instead. What was the experience like for a passenger? The early cars, the horse cars, the experience would have been much like they were used to with a stagecoach. Was it like something you see out of Bat Masterson? A little bit. Um, a lot of the testimony from the time, the people would talk about how they would um, fill the floor of the stagecoach with straw uh, as kind of a, um, like an insulation, right? The problem was a lot of people chewed tobacco back then, so they'd spit on the floor. Uh, they were a fire hazard. You can imagine the vermin that are getting into the cars. It was a pretty horrible experience. Uh, so when they tried to modernize the cars, especially when you get into the 1880s and the 1890s and the coming of the trolleys, it becomes much more similar to what we think of today. What did it cost? It was set at five cents for, for a ride for a very long time. That was kind of the standard cost for transit rides across the country, actually. When they first started, was that thought to be a lot of money? When they first started, yes. I mean, you point out James Boxall, right? And he's charging around that amount in 1830, and that amount holds into the 1900s. So you can imagine that over 70 years, five cents becomes a better and better deal as the decades pass. 
Was it profitable? It was, especially in the heyday. So if you look at the 1880s and 1890s, there's a lot of profits in the industry. And that holds true into, especially for Philadelphia 19-teens and even the 1920s, there's still a significant amount of profit. have to, uh, well, let me, before I read this, let me ask the experience of being an employee of mm -hmm. the, uh, like a driver of one of these cars or the guy running the the handle on the, the brake on the, grip. the cable car. Right. What was the jobs like? If you're talking about the earlier times, the, the say the 19th century, the early 20th century, uh, it was an incredibly difficult job. Uh, the workers, they were almost all men, and they were generally very young in their 20s or early 30s. A lot of them came from smaller communities around Pennsylvania and moved to Philadelphia. And because they were young, they didn't have much education, and it was a job that they could get that would at least give them some income. What they found was that the workers generally were on their feet for 18 hours a day. Uh, they seldom got more than a 15 minute break for meals and they made about 14 to 15 dollars a week for their pay and their expenses living in Philadelphia were about 13.50 a week. So if you think about the, uh, the difficulty of the job and the fact that they're working in a northern climate and they're around hundreds if not thousands of people a day and they're out in the elements so they get sick a lot colds and pneumonia and so on um, you wind up in a point where workers if they could work every week they could make it but if you got sick and you were out of work for a week or two weeks and you were renting an apartment and you had a wife and a child, then you very quickly found yourself out on the street. There's no social safety net. It's a very difficult job. They also um, often got what were called trolley legs was the uh, name of the disease. And basically it was a circulatory disease uh, from standing on their feet day after day for years on the hard platform. So they would wear rubber stockings or tight silk stockings, kind of like we put on people in the hospital today who have circulatory problems to try to keep the circulation going. But after four or five years, for the most part, they wound up getting worn out. And for Philadelphians, if they were more from, say, the religious or moral ethical communities, they would say, how can you treat people this way? For a lot of Philadelphia citizens, the corollary was, if they're thrown out and they become indigent, who has to pay to take care of them? You say on here the uh, the Philadelphia Rapid Transit was the uh, the company that things consolidated toward uh, had not enclosed all of its vestibules by 1906 when managers worried that doing so would cost the company some sixteen thousand dollars. So the drivers were out in the elements. They were out in the elements twelve months out of the year. So if it was raining or snowing or anything else, uh, they were always exposed to the weather. And at different transit companies around the country. People actually working for the company sued to have just windshields put in, vestibules put in uh, to protect the, the workers. And remember, the late 1800s was a time of a laissez-faire political economy, which basically meant that the f political and financial elites said the government has a few key jobs. Protect us from foreign enemies, make sure there are roads and the rivers are dredged, and make sure that there are some basic fair rules of the game that are established. After that, hands off. So what the companies said, and they actually went to court over this, they argued that it is unconstitutional 
for us to be required to put windshields on trolleys because you are depriving us of our property. So it was this kind of constitutional fight that they put together. Eventually, they do put the windscreens in. Did they win that one? They, they eventually lost the court battle. But it took a long time because, you know, the justice system agreed. I mean, we're talking about until the 1920s and especially the 1930s when you start to see more New Deal labor legislation that is more protective of workers' rights. Did, did the cars that, that didn't have glass for the vestibule, did it have windows for the passengers? Often they did, but especially in the summer, you can imagine how hot it was in those cars. So a lot of times they just um, would have those windows down as well. So you can, you can imagine that it wasn't the most pleasant of experiences. Were there accidents? A lot of accidents. One of the things that I found in looking at uh, the primary sources, looking at all the newspapers from Philadelphia, especially in the 1890s into the early 1900s, was that as the system electrified and management said, this is the wave of the future. We're modernizing the city. We're digging the Market Street subway and the Broad Street subway, right? We are going to rationalize the timetables. We're going to have trolleys that go into every community. What they found was that there aren't very many parks in Philadelphia. So the streets are where children went out to play and men and women went out to either meet with their friends or conduct business. So if you lived in a society where you, you were used to horse cars, you would know to listen for horses' hooves on cobblestone. And horses would go four to six miles an hour, basically, in the city. And they would haul eight, 10, maybe 12 people or so. But then when the trolleys came, what wound up happening is that the trolleys got much bigger. They would haul 25, 30 or more people as they got larger. They went faster, 10 or 12 miles an hour. They were harder to stop, and they were electrified so people didn't hear the trolley coming in the same way. So the newspapers are full of articles about children being run over in the streets by these trolleys. And you can imagine what this looks like when a kid is hit by a 20, 30, 40,000 pound trolley, steel wheels on steel rails. A lot of people lost limbs. Kids were pinned against motors, completing a circuit and electrified. And the newspapers we're in the business to sell papers. So one of the things they like to do is have a photograph of the little girl sitting there holding her teddy bear and then say, she died last night. So it's all this kind of horrifying stories and it's part of the reason that the trolley system becomes this, this kind of place where people pour a lot of their feelings about where society is going into this conf these conflicts that take place on the system. Did the city government do much regulation of the system, or, or um, did they kind of, or were there kind of a cozy relationship there? It was a cozy relationship for one thing. There, there were two ways that you could go about trying to secure a better, safer system. One was working with the city government, and especially in this time period, the Republican political machine of Philadelphia was very much in league with business interests. Uh, so there wasn't a lot of give there. There were a few kind of independent Republicans who called for change. The other was that with the threat of lawsuits, the company did start saying, maybe we should make this a little bit safer system. But it was stopgap measures. It wasn't overly safe. One of the things they did was they put giant baskets on the front of these trolleys. They almost look comical, um, where if somebody wasn't paying attention, the basket would actually scoop somebody out of the way, supposedly. Often what it did was push them down under the wheels. So it was not a good system. 
But those were the two ways that people really saw to try to reform the system, especially in its early years. When did the workers start organizing? They started organizing in the 1880s and 1890s, joining the Knights of Labor and then the Amalgamated. So those were the earliest unions. And you're talking about 1895 is the first really significant strike on the system. Well, I have to ask you about it, one that actually predates that. You have the um, Quaker City Protective Association in 1886 and their president, Morris Weidler, he presented demands calling for a 12-hour day, standard pay of $2 per day, and time for meals. Uh, the, his considered stance resulted in his dismissal from the transit service and co-workers who boarded in his home moved out for fear of reprisals. Mm -hmm. Didn't work out very well for him. Not very well. The, the, the knee-jerk reaction with the Knights of Labor, which was the affiliation of the Quaker um, City organization, but the Knights of Labor and also the Amalgamated later, because of the time period we're talking about with the laissez-faire political economy, Management said, yes, you do have a right of association. You have the right to organize unions. We have the right to not negotiate with you. We also have 100% right to decide who works for us. So if you join a union or you recruit people into a union, we have the right to fire you. When did things start to consolidate into the Philadelphia Rapid Transit, to the one big company? Peter Widener was the um, financial interest behind this, and he had allies as well. But he had connections in City Hall and then especially in Harrisburg. So what he did was he started going to all these different individual proprietors on the different streets and buying those up and consolidating into a system. And it's really about 1901 that the Philadelphia Rapid Transit Company finally comes into existence. Were there still competitors out there, or did they have a monopoly? There are some, and what happens is that there are some, like in suburban Upper Darby, for example, the Red Arrow Lines. Um, then there are also the Pennsylvania Railroad, and you know the different railroads that are running the commuter lines out to the suburbs. Uh, but in the city, Widener buys up all the competition, unites it into first Union Traction, and then the Philadelphia Rapid Transit Company. So it, it takes a process of about 15 years to do this. One of the things that Widener always faced, though, was that somebody else could come along who had allies either in City Hall or in the State House, and they would buy the franchise on another street where Widener didn't have trolley lines. So it was always a matter of trying to keep up with the competition and keep them out so you could maintain the monopoly and keep up your own profits. Oh, I have to ask you about this gentleman who gets his own chapter, Thomas Mitten, mm -hmm. the age of Thomas Mitten. Why is that so significant? Who was he? So Thomas Mitten, some people um, who are familiar with Temple University know there's a Mitten Hall on um, Temple's campus, and it's named after him. He was seen as a great business leader at the time. And the reason he was such a great business leader, and he came from different traction industries around the country, came to Philadelphia. And he came in 1910 because there had been a huge general strike. And the political and financial leaders of the city said, we can't have this kind of class warfare in our city. So they bring in Thomas Mitten to save the system. And Mitten says, this is my opportunity to solve what everyone at the time called the labor question. And the labor question essentially boils down to this. And it's who will work for whom and under what conditions? It's a question we all face. So Thomas Mitten said, what we have to do to the um, put class warfare in this country at rest. Remember, this is a time period of Pullman strikes, of, um, of Ludlow out in Colorado, of the Philadelphia transit strike. There are massive um, strikes and clashes all over the country for about 40 years. And Mitten said, I can solve the labor question. 
Everybody hopes he can. And what he did was he instituted probably the most advanced form of welfare capitalism in the United States. And welfare capitalism essentially says, we will take care of our workers and we will provide health insurance, we'll provide death benefits, we'll provide a company store where you can buy clothing at a lower cost. And the other part that he put in place was a stock purchase plan. So what he told the workers was, you work harder, the company makes more money, I will pay you a higher wage, but I will also make sure that you get more in company stock. As you work harder and make more money and the company does better, the stock prices keep going up, that's your retirement pension. So you put it all together and Mitten said, I am going to turn labor into capital. That's the way to solve the labor question. But he also broke the union. He did also break the union. So that was the kind of glowing positive side, right? The negative side was that if you want this to actually work, you have to run the independent union, the amalgamated out of town. And you also have to convince workers that purchasing stock in the company is a great idea. Right? If you think about Enron 15 years or so ago, it was the same kind of scheme, if you will. Right? The idea that I work for the company, it's a great company, I work really hard, I trust myself, and you know what? I'm going to get rich for retirement off of the same company that's paying me my salary now. Financial planners will tell you that's a really bad idea. And that ultimately comes to pass for the workers because as time goes on, they start to really kind of identify their interests with management more than with their own interests as workers. So the union is gone. They do have some of the other fringe benefits, but they keep buying stock in the company. Fine, but at some point they start telling Thomas Mitten, I don't want to get a pay raise anymore. I want to buy more stock. So they started foregoing pay raises to get more stock. That was in the union negotiation. That was not so much a union negotiation as they formed what was called a company union which was the cooperative association, they called it, because Thomas Minton always talked about how cooperation is the way forward rather than conflict. And things were going so well that he started telling the city of Philadelphia, look at what we're doing. This isn't just cooperation. This is super cooperation, right? So he's kind of a booster of his own plan. And the workers completely believed it, and they bought into it to the point that by forgoing their pay raises, they were bringing in less money, and it was going into the stock price and the dividends. Sounds good, but who is one of the largest purchasers of stock in the company? Thomas Minton. So it's propping up his own value, and he's going to the city and saying, look what a great job I'm doing. I should be getting a pay raise. So he keeps bringing in hundreds of thousands of dollars. Meanwhile, the workers are kind of, you know, their, their wages are going up, but that's basically meeting inflation. So Mitten is getting wealthy off the company. The workers are kind of holding even, but the problem with the welfare um, capitalism is that September of 1928, early fall, Mitten goes out to his um, estate out in the Poconos. He goes out onto a pond. He's in a canoe. It's chilly that morning, so he wraps himself in a wool coat, and he gets out into the middle of the pond, casts his fishing line into the water, leans over to get something tips himself into the water. Wearing the wool coat, pulls him to the bottom, and he drowns. A month later, the stock market crashes. And there are some wags who say, well, Mitten may have been the lucky one here, right? Um, the whole thing comes apart as soon as the stock market stops ratcheting up. 
So now you have workers who have foregone their pay raises for a decade. You have workers who have invested everything they have in transit company stock, and the money's gone. Could it have kept going if there was not a Great Depression? I mean, was it essentially a sound concept? In some ways, it's what we hope capitalism will provide for us, right? If we work harder, we're going to benefit from it, and we'll benefit from it from salaries and also smart investments. And we also like the idea that our company, in some ways, is there and kind of takes care of us, right? You know, you are provided with health insurance, although you pay part of the premiums. Um, you're provided with death benefits and all the other things that you get from working for a corporation. So it, it feels good. It sounds good. You want it to be true. But when ultimately underpinning it is a rising stock market, the stock market doesn't always rise. And that's when welfare capitalism across the country, not just in the transit system in Philadelphia, but in steel companies and at department stores and from New York to Los Angeles, there were lots of welfare capitalism systems and they all kind of fall apart at the same time. There was something you referred to we, we kind of skipped over and that was some, some of the big strikes. Mm -hmm. There was the railroad strike in the late 1800s and then there was a 1909 strike and a 1910 strike. Can you talk about some of those and what came out of them? Mm -hmm. So there's a small strike on the Philadelphia Transit System in 1895 that essentially um, breaks the union. They lose their organizing campaign. And for about 15 years, there's just this kind of underground simmering discontent among the workforce. And then in 1909, you have the amalgamated come back in and organize the system. Several people are fired, and there's a massive strike. And the workers actually win which is a rarity in Philadelphia and in America at this time period, the workers actually win the strike. And they think they've captured the workforce loyalty and they're going to be able to go forward and negotiate contracts and so on. But management's very hard line. And in 1910, they start to renege on a lot of the contractual agreements. And in 1910, the workforce says, this is it, we can't trust management, we're going back on strike. So they walk out in early 1910, and at first it's a transit strike. But that strike begins to grow, and it grows for a number of reasons. It gets connected to a lot of other working class people around the city of Philadelphia, people who work in the garment factories and the textile mills and so on, because they say, what I see happening to the workers at the transit system feels like what is happening to me in my workplace. Nobody respects the work I do. I'm not allowed to organize. I'm not allowed to protest. I'm not allowed to ask for higher wages. I get fired. And then I look at the transit system and my niece was run over by a trolley and killed. And I don't feel like the transit company even cared. And then the last piece is that if you think about most strikes, they take place in a specific location, right? At a steel mill or a factory or something like that. But with transit, the trolley lines run into every neighborhood in the city, especially working class Kensington and South Philadelphia. And because those trolley lines run into every community in the city, you don't have to go out of your way to find a factory where the conflict is. The conflict is outside your front door. And the transit company, one of the ways they tried to intimidate the workforce and break the strike is they would send trolleys, they would break the windows out of the trolleys. And they would send these strike breakers in the trolleys, leaning out the windows with pistols, guns blazing, running into these different Philadelphia communities. And in the strike of 1910, about 25 people were killed. 
there's dynamiting of trolley cars across the city of Philadelphia. It's a it's a mayhem situation. Is that where you front the picture in the front cover Correct. of the book is from the 1910 mm -hmm. strike? Mm -hmm. um, when they before mass transit, how did people get around? So the city was much more compact, much smaller. Basically, if you think about where City Hall was, that's the western end of Philadelphia. Most people lived along the Delaware River. You may have owned a horse, maybe a horse and buggy, or a small stagecoach, something like that to get around. But for the most part, people walked. They talk about walking cities of the time. And, you know, normal human walking, you can go about four miles an hour. So people would be willing to walk about two miles, right, or half an hour to get somewhere, to visit a relative or to go to work. So if it's a walking city, about two miles is the, is the distance people are willing to go. So it makes the cities very compact. Were people's jobs all within that, that kind of distance? If you looked at the neighborhoods in the early 1800s or before, which you would find it was a much more mixed-use community, right? You would live above the saddle shop where you worked, or you would live around the corner from the blacksmith, or whatever the, was the work you were doing. You lived in that community. It was much more mixed than we think of today. Did mass transit change that, or was it changing already? No, it was changing in some ways, and when you talk about mass transit, if you're talking about horse cars, right, you know, that's kind of the early part. As you move into horse cars, people can now live about four, five, maybe six miles from their workplace and be able to get to work. And then when you uh, move to electric trolleys, you can live 10, 12 miles from work. So you start seeing the city expand. So mass transit really does change urban development, it brings a lot more land under development. And in part, that also means for the city, a much larger tax base. Well, also it enabled people to uh, go into Center City to go shopping. Mm-hmm. So you see the growth of the massive department stores, Lit Brothers and so on, and you start to see um, that the city starts to segregate itself, that this is the shopping district, this is where we have more of our, our um, light uh, manufacturing and so on. The city starts to separate, but it takes a long time because people have bought homes, right? So they're not going to just pick up and move immediately. But if you look in North Philadelphia, Spring Garden area, and then East Philadelphia um, over near the Delaware River and so on, you can still see some of this mixed use. A lot of the, um, the manufacturing is left, but you can still see the battery um, factories and those kinds of things in those communities. Were labor relations always contentious? I think that's to this day, there are transit strikes pretty, mm -hmm. pretty regularly in yeah, Philadelphia. Philadelphia was especially well known for, uh, for the contentiousness of its labor relations. Um, when you think about the industries in Philadelphia, there are very few really large-scale industries like steel, uh, rubber, auto making, those kinds of things. Philadelphia tended to be more small batch production, right? Garments and textiles and so on. Bethlehem Steel, and there are a few other larger concerns. Distance Saw is another one. But for the most part, they're smaller industries. And unions had a hard time kind of getting a foothold and organizing because so many of Philadelphia's industries were also family owned. So it was kind of this proprietary capitalism and almost a feeling of how dare you come into my home, into my business and do this. Well, you mentioned the subway building. When, when did they start building the subway and how did they take a, a developed city and tear it up enough to build mm -hmm. to tunnel underneath main streets? 
So you're talking about the first decade after the turn of the 20th century for building Market Street subway. So 1907, give or take, right? So they build Market Street, and then the Broad Street subway comes along about 20 years later in the 1920s. Uh, the Market Street subway, in part, was built because there was a, a large clamor that trolleys can't handle all the business. We have to get people moving better. And there was some talk, do we build overheads, do we build elevateds? There are some examples of elevateds in Philadelphia, but a lot of the community said we don't like elevateds. Uh, you know, they're, they cast odd shadows, they're loud, you know, they're dirty. Bury them. It's easier to bury a subway when you haven't developed the land yet. But Market Street has been around for 250 years at this point, right? So how do you do that? And they had a lot of um, technical specifications, right, of the specs of what's under the, under the street, gas lines and water lines and all those kinds of things. The trouble is, over a couple hundred years, people bury stuff and don't write it down. Uh, so a lot of what they had to do, especially around City Hall, is they had to dig it by hand. So you can imagine how laborious this is and how time-consuming it is. And then they had to figure out how do we get around City Hall uh, at this immensely heavy building. Uh, so it was a really difficult project. In part, it happened because the um, PRT interests were, again, challenged by other financiers coming in and buying the rights to build a subway. So the PRT said, if we don't build it, somebody else will, and all our investments in the trolleys are going to be worthless. So they were essentially forced into, buy, into building the Market Street subway because of financial competition. Where did you get the money for it? It had to be enormously expensive. It was very expensive, and it came from private funding for the Market Street subway, but it so stressed the company that in part when that um, massive strike comes in 1910, the company is financially in such dire straits that it felt it had to fight because it just couldn't afford anything else. Even if they had been philosophically inclined to work with unions, they said, we're stuck. We can't afford this. So that's why... Um, after that strike and after building the Market Street subway to begin with, you started to see more city involvement, contracts get renegotiated, and the um, system becomes privately owned and operated, but with city input. So it's kind of a quasi-public-private partnership. Did the city have to subsidize them at all back then? They eventually had to. Right, and in part because the city said, we have a massive investment here because this is where our financial engine comes from. This is how we move goods and people around the city. So we have to have some say. So if you think about what the city is doing is they're saying, by giving you this franchise, we are giving a private corporation the right to control public property, to run a trolley or a horse car wagon up and down a city street. So we're giving you a valuable good, and we're giving it to a particular person. So in exchange, you have to give us something. And at first, it was payment in dollars and also commitment for snow removal and upkeep of the streets and curbstones and all those kinds of things. And the transit company started to say, we can't afford this anymore. Now, whether or not that was true is another story, but that's what they claimed. And especially when you put the Market Street subway in there, too, the price has become so high to run the system that the city says, we'll give you a break on all the things you contractually negotiated to do, but in exchange, we get more say 
in what happens in the system. Did the city regulate prices, ticket prices? For a long time, yes. You know, the city said five cent fare, right? Uh, and that was just kind of the standard fare across the country. And when you move, especially into the early 20th century and then World War I when inflation takes off, that's again when you start to see another financial stress point in the mid to late 19-teens where they say a five cent fare in 1895 was fine. Prices have gone up 74% on things like steel and electrical equipment. Our salary costs are going up. We have to buy new trolleys. All this costs money, and you locked us into a five-cent fare. You have some situation in your book where they raised the rate a penny, and there was just an outrage over it. Yeah. So you started to see when the company did come in, and they kind of worked with the city reps, the mayor, Rayburn, I think is the case you're talking about for this one. Um, they worked with city officials, and they said, we're going to raise by a single penny. Right, which is basically the lowest you could raise it unless you sold multiple tickets at a time. And the, the people of Philadelphia cried out, this is an outrage, right? No taxation without representation is what they said. They had people dressing up in uh, Revolutionary War garb and they were you know, hanging people in effigy and it was kind of hearkening back to the Revolutionary period because they had the sense that the political leadership of the city and the financial class we're making backroom deals. In Philadelphia, as Lincoln Steffens famously said, was corrupt and contented. And so that was kind of the sense that people had is yet again, the politicians and the big shots are getting together and they're taking money out of my pocket. Now you said uh, as part of the excuse or the reason for raising ticket prices, the, the different things that were going up in price, and you said that uh, labor costs were going up. Was it getting to be a better job to be a, a transport worker? In some ways, uh, moving from running a horse car to um, operating a trolley, it's a bit of a step up. It's a more complicated job. Uh, the, the management used to talk about how, how can you really respect a man who spends 18 hours a day at the tail end of a horse, right? So there was this kind of notion that you're a, you're a farm boy yokel come to the city. And there was a little more... Um, a little more responsibility with running a big electric trolley. But still you have that mindset about working class people and unions and how they are there to do a job, they're not there to, to speak. So although salaries are rising some, and this especially happens when Thomas Mitten comes in, salaries are rising some, but particularly before Thomas Mitten, not a lot more respect for people doing the job. Does it get to be a desirable job to have? For some people, it's a desirable job. If you think about people coming in who had worked on the farm and said, I just want to live in the city, this is a job that they can do, that they work in the city. It feels a bit like what they've done before, especially operating a horse car, but they're living in the big city. So there are quite a few workers who testify to that. When times are rough and there's still um, work to be had at the transit system, but a lot of jobs are drying up in the mills and factories and so on, it's fairly desirable. They like the, the navy blue outfits and, you know, kind of the pomp and circumstance of a uniform. They like those things. But ultimately, they start to see that there's really no future here. And after four or five years, my body is kind of used up by this job. At some point, uh, people who remember the 1950s in Philadelphia will remember the PTC. When does Philadelphia Rapid Transit become the PTC? 
right? That's at the end of the depression as the, as the uh, system goes through more and more financial difficulties throughout the 1930s. They go through a reorganization and emerge at the end of the 30s, early 40s, transitioning from the PRT to the PTC or the Philadelphia Transportation Company. And when does the Transport Workers Union come in? The Transport Workers Union came in in the 1940s. So during the 30s, workers were scared of losing their jobs, right? You know, with Thomas Mitten, the old union was gone. There was a company union in place, but it didn't really represent their interests. It was controlled by management. So they didn't really have a union. And then in the 1930s, they don't really want to unionize, even though unionization is taking place across the country. They're nervous, and you can understand why. Then by the 1940s, the economy seems to be picking up a little bit, and the Transport Workers Union emerges in New York City. And the TWU, which still represents Philly's transit workers today, the TWU is more leftist in its orientation. Michael Quill was generally kind of coy about whether or not he was a member of the Communist Party. Well, talk about him a little bit. Who yeah, so Quill, Quill is somebody for older viewers that they'll remember, uh, you know, the Irish brogue on the radio, right? And Quill was a very much a firebrand. He relished, you know, kind of the public fight with management. And he comes out of New York kind of labor organizing traditions, which tended to be more leftist than what you saw in Philadelphia. So when Quill comes in with a number of his organizers, several of whom actually were in the Communist Party unabashedly, they come in and they offer a much more leftist approach to union organizing. They're part of the CIO as opposed to the AFL, and the CIO is much more kind of broad-based in its appeal. So they said, if you're a transport worker, you're with us. If you're in an AFL union, it might be if you're a driver, you're in this union. If you work in maintenance, you're in this union, right? So they split up along craft, whereas the CIO was all about the industry. So when the TWU comes in, they say, we're all in this together. And you have been mistreated by this company for three generations now. We're the ones who can support you. Join us. And the workers start kind of listening to that call. The company union has been renamed to get around labor law because labor law said company unions were illegal. So they renamed the old company union, the Philadelphia Rapid Transit Employees Union, still dominated by management, but they were able to convince government authorities for several years. It's not a company union. It really was, but they convinced them that it wasn't. So workers tended to stay with that company union until the contracts they were negotiating were just terrible. One cent raises, those kinds of things. So they start moving towards the TWU. Part of this story also is that the Philadelphia management, the management of the Philadelphia transit system, had always run a segmented workforce. And essentially what that meant was white men can serve as trolley drivers, ticket takers, those kinds of things. Black men are going to work in the maintenance division. There are very few women working on the system, secretaries and so on, but very few women work in the trolley system at this point. But black men are going to have the lowest of the jobs in the system, maintaining the trolleys, cleaning them, maintaining the track, those kinds of things. The TWU, because of its CIO orientation, we're all in this together, because of its leftist-leaning viewpoint, they started talking to the African-American workers, and they said, we want representation, and we want your support in breaking the job barrier here. And the TWU didn't want to broadcast this too widely, 
white working class racism is a, you know, a point of fact in what's happening in Philadelphia and across the United States at this time. So they don't want to emphasize it too much, the TWU, but they did say, we support you. So when African-American workers with the NAACP start going to the Fair Employment Practices Committee, this federal um, organization that supports black rights in the, in the job, um, job market in the workplace, they come back to the TWU. And the TWU gets all of them on board and gets enough of the white workers on board that even though they come under attack from management, because management starts saying, well, you're a bunch of commies, right? Kind of a typical approach. It doesn't have much water, though. It doesn't carry much water because everybody working for the company says, I don't care if they're communists. We're dying here. We need a pay raise. We need better job conditions and so on. So they didn't really find much purchase with that. They also brought back the old AFL union that had been kicked out. They brought in the Brotherhood of Railroad Trainmen. They brought back the old company union. They supported any other union that would fight the TWU. And there was a nasty inner division, inner um, union fight that takes place. People are beaten up, their houses are smashed, all these kinds of things. The TWU wins, not by a lot, about 55% for the TWU and about 45% for the other unions combined. In part, they won because of the black workers. So African-Americans are a big part of the reason the TWU comes in and takes over as the representative body. And now management's very afraid. They're just recovering from the Depression, and now they have a real adversary at the bargaining table, and they know it's going to cost them millions of dollars. They estimated somewhere around $4 million it would cost them in the new contract because they had to negotiate with the TWU. Were they still profitable, the transit company? Once you move into World War II and economic activity starts to build up again, they become profitable again. So it's that kind of infusion of government cash into the city of Philadelphia where if you've got a job at the naval shipyards down in South Philadelphia, you have to get there, you're going to ride Philly Transit. Did they use women drivers during the Second World War? During the World War II they did. They did a little bit in World War I, but World War II is when women really started to get jobs on the transit company, especially as drivers. Now, for the most part, they all said, when the war's over, I want to go back to the home because my brother, my husband, whoever it is that was working for the company, usually they were connected to somebody who already worked at the company who had been drafted. They said, I want him to have his job back. My place is in the home. Now, of course, they're just kind of following socially expected norms, but that was what they often said. But women showed over and over again they could drive trolleys, they could drive high-speed subways and everything else. They could do any of the jobs on the system that men could do. There was also something in, I think, 1944 you refer to as the hate strike. Mm -hmm. What was that about? So with the TWU taking over and African-Americans um, being promoted to the job of driver, a lot of white workers started saying, wait a minute, this isn't what I signed up for. I thought that was just talk. And you have to keep in mind that for white working-class men, the idea was that this is a job that not only do I have, but my kid's not going to college, may not finish high school, but I can pass this job down to him. They also were thinking, I live near my car barn. That was typical. So you live near where you go to work. So if African Americans are going to start working in those car barns, you're going to have neighborhood change. And neighborhood change means change of racial demographics in the schools and black men being around white women. And all these things kind of start percolating in these men's minds. And they say, we can't have this. It's fundamentally racist, but it's the way they looked at the world. 
So they start having meetings saying, we, we, we may want to go on strike here. We may not want to run this system if we're going to have to deal with black promotions. So it would have been union members striking against other union members. In, in a sense, yes. So these white workers start coming together and they say, we may go on strike to, promote, to prevent the promotion of African Americans to these higher level jobs. So they start holding these rallies, massive rallies with hundreds of people on company property. Now remember the company's history is you always call out the strike breakers or the cops, you crack a few heads, you put the union in its place, and you keep the business running. In this case, management says, well, we, we can't do anything about this. The government's saying we have to promote, it's not our fault, if you want to meet on company property, you can. And a lot of observers, especially liberal observers, thought, what's going on here? Management doesn't act this way, especially at this company. And as they started investigating further, what became apparent was that part of what management was thinking was that there's a law in place called the War Labor Disputes Act. And what that said was if there's a strike at a company that supports the war effort, then the federal government has the right to send in troops and break the strike. And if they break the strike, they also have the right to break the union. So management, they can't prevent the TWU, but maybe they can allow this racial hate strike to take place, shut down the third largest war production center in the United States, and the federal government will send in troops and, and crush the strike and also throw out the TWU, and that would abrogate any contract that they had signed. What happened? So when the workers go on strike on August 1st, 1944, at first it shuts down the city. Naval Shipyard, Frankfurt Arsenal, all these places People can't get to work. This is eight weeks after D-Day. So think about that for a minute. Two months after D-Day, one of the most important war production centers in the entire country grinds to a halt. Franklin Roosevelt issues a statement saying, we are going to send 5,000 armed troops into the city of Philadelphia, and they do. They send in armed troops, 5,000 soldiers come in, and they take over the city. They set up sandbag foxholes at major intersections. They um, send out sound trucks and they send out telegrams and they get in touch with the strike leaders and they tell them, you have a week. If you and all of the workforce are not back working for the company and driving trolleys, you're going to be drafted. So you have a choice. You can either go get shot at by the Nazis or you can have black people drive trolleys. That's your choice. The white workers shot at by the Nazis drive a trolley that black people also drive, I'll go with driving the trolley. It breaks the strike, but it really kind of highlights this, this nasty division along racial lines in the workforce at the PRT. And as the strike came to an end, and as I continued my research, I really wanted to see, okay, how does this get healed? How does it play out over time? Because this isn't something that can just disappear. And I was really struck by how little racial division and racial rhetoric there was in the ensuing years. There's some, right? There's always some. But ultimately, what I found was that the workers, they kind of settled in. They said, well, black people may drive a bus or a trolley or a subway car. I will, too. I'm going to have to live with that. And in the upcoming union elections in fall of 1944, they elect five African Americans to post in the union leadership, one of whom is a vice president. So it kind of gets suppressed. It doesn't just disappear. 
but it's not a major dividing line anymore. And in part, I think that's because management no longer allowed an atmosphere to persist where these things could be kind of ratcheted up to the point that you had conflict. At what point was kind of the peak? And after that, it was all downhill for, for mass transit as a business. So World War II revives the business for a time. There's around a billion riders in um, the system at, after um, World War II or at the height of World War II. But by the end of the war, management's starting to look at the numbers and they say, we have a problem. And the problem is in part that financial activity in the city is going to start to tail off because government contracts are drying up. But it's also because as you move into the post-war period, cities are suburbanizing. They're building highways. And as they build highways and people are buying suburban homes, they're not commuting on the PRT or the PTC or eventually SEPTA, they're driving their cars. So you see ridership decline kind of steadily throughout the late 40s, 1950s, and beyond. You have a chart in here that shows from 1956 there were 596 million riders, and uh, eight years later, 1964, it's down to 289 million, so it's half, mm -hmm. but the revenue was about the same. So mm -hmm. that meant they just kept ratcheting up they, the You keep raising fares, fares and what, what ultimately happens is that there's this kind of conflict that becomes a different form in the 19, late 1940s and 1950s. And whereas you had had strike breaking and violence early on, <clears throat> and then you had the mitten plan and welfare capitalism, and then you had to turn to using the company union and then race baiting, by the 1950s there's a shift that takes place. And the shift has to do with the relationship between management and labor, which is really about more of a PR campaign. And labor is at high tide in the 1950s. That's the highest point of union membership in American history. So in the 1950s, workers are saying, yeah, I want to negotiate contracts about salary or wages. I want to negotiate about working conditions and hours. But I also want to negotiate about what technology do we use? Do we get rid of trolleys in favor of buses? Who gets laid off? How do we pay dividends and so on? And management said, wait a minute. That's a management prerogative. You can negotiate about wages and working conditions, not the other stuff. So there's this fight. And what management starts to tell the people of Philadelphia is that, look, the TWU, they never, they never really go with their communists or go with Red Scare tactics, which surprised me, actually, given the era. Instead, they said they're outsiders, they're special interests, and for many Philadelphians, as damning as anything, they say they're New Yorkers, right? So they, they cast them as these outsiders who don't care about Philadelphians and their interests. So they say that every time the union says we want a higher wage, we have to raise fares, right? And the union says, no, 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 wait a minute. That is a false choice argument. Here's what they could do. They could lower dividends right? It's the same pot of money. The question is, who's the money going to? And the workers are saying more money should come to us and more money should stay in the pockets of Philadelphians. Don't raise the fares. Just quit paying such high dividends and maybe lower the salaries of management. It sounds like for a stretch there, there was almost annual strikes. Mm -hmm. And when, when all that was going on, where was public opinion? It was, if not annual strikes, at least annual or biannual threats of strikes. The TWU man, or I'm sorry, P, um, PTC management wanted two-year contracts just so they could put off 
a strike or a threat of a strike for another year. The TWU went out and campaigned and said, look, we're on your side. We're in the vanguard. We're helping to lead the movement for improved working conditions and wages for all working class people. It was one of the largest CIO unions in all of Philadelphia. Management said, they're not on your side. They're a special interest and they're demanding more money and we're gonna have to raise fares. So what they're doing as a special interest is they are reaching into your pocket, taking out extra money to put it in their pocket. As if management had no control about how any of the money was spent except for the fare and wage relationship. And they convinced the people of Philadelphia and much of the press that they're right. And they ultimately launched this PR campaign, campaign that is very successful. And it kind of pigeonholes public service workers, and we hear a lot of this rhetoric to this day, transit workers in this case, but postal employees and teachers and so on. But people who work for kind of public industries, they're special interests who care only about themselves. It's not about them being part of the broader public. It's about them being in a union that's a special interest. So management really is able to kind of cement that opinion of transit workers. So transit workers win the battle, their wages keep rising, but they wind up losing the war because they look like a special interest. A lot of the lines are converted from trolleys to buses and that means fewer workers because you had usually two workers on a trolley and one on a bus. A lot of people who were more senior who worked in maintenance got laid off. And ultimately, with the layoffs, what you see with those charts is that while profits stayed the same, income drops, profits stayed the same because you were able to lay off a lot of people and raise fares. So you're paying higher wage, but to fewer people, and you're doing it on a larger fare base so you can keep the same level of profits and keep paying out the dividends. I wish we had more time to talk because there's a lot to talk about, about the decline of PTC and when SEPTA was created and the subsidies and all that, but we are out of time. If you want to know the rest of it, you'll have to read this book, Running the Rails, Capital and Labor in the Philadelphia Transit Industry. James Wolfinger, thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.